Welcome to the Federalist Outpost. I was in elementary school when the Soviet Union collapsed. And I mean, I was young. I was five or six. And I remember everybody around me being excited about it. And I didn't know anything about a place I'd never been to, but I'd heard about it. And, you know, I, I remember in elementary school, we first got emails when I was in, I don't know, fourth grade. And we had pen pals in Moscow. And we had the idea that this place had existed and that it was going through this change. But as a six-year-old, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know anything about it. I, I didn't even understand that that meant we had won the Cold War. I remember, though, that there was a neighbor of mine who lived across the street. He was uh, older by that point. He had retired from the military. He was a doctor, I guess. He had a really big house, and that was what I knew of him. He had a big house and a brick driveway and a basketball court. And uh, he called me over, and he showed me a piece of concrete. And he said, do you know what this is? And I looked at it, and I said, well, it's a rock. And he said, well, yeah, it is now. But this is a part of the Berlin Wall. And I thought, what's that? And, and so I kind of did the polite thing that you do to old people when they start talking nonsensically at you. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And he ended up telling me, the story, effectively, of how he had been over there shortly after the Berlin Wall had fallen, and he had gotten a piece of it himself. He had gone to where they were taking it apart, and and he'd gotten it. And the significance of that was so difficult for me to understand because the the context, the history, the sixty years of Soviet influence in in the world, the problems that we had over the Cold War, the threat to my parents and my grandparents that this country was, and I didn't understand it, and I, I couldn't. And I think that's where a huge part of our population is today. They, they can't understand the Soviet Union. They can't understand the threat of communism or socialism the way that the greatest generation could or that the baby boomers could, or even to some degree, the Generation X could. I think if you're a millennial or a Gen Z, it's fairy tales. It's things that are in books. And so when we look at education now, it, it's about passing along an accurate picture of what those ideologies actually look like in practice. Everybody knows that Marxism looks great on paper. The problem is the execution. And it's in the execution where we're starting to see changes, revisionist history editing of what actually happened in an effort to try to make it a little bit softer, in an effort to try to not demonize things which no one alive today can attest to directly. When I talk about Soviet communism, and in this particular section that we're going to deal with today, talks about education and, and youth groups and things like that. But when I talk about Soviet communism, I'm talking about socialism. There's a, a separation that started probably before I was in school of the idea that communism and socialism are two different things. And they're really not. Most of your average socialists today agree with the vast majority of the communist principles and guidelines 
because it's pretty much the same line of thinking. And if you need further evidence that socialism and communism are the same thing, just go back and read the different policies and the propaganda, the names of the institutions that they had. They all use the term socialism, particularly early on. There were government bodies called socialist this and socialist that. The United States has forever called the Soviets just the Soviets or the communists. But don't forget the USSR is the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. That was who the Soviets were. They were socialists and they liked to pretend that they were democratic, much like China does today. So the infiltration of communism into our society vis-a-vis the education is really the expansion of socialism inside of those same areas. And so you look at people today, like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez, people who are self-identified socialists, and then you go and you read some of the communist websites, the American Communist Party and, and the rest of them, and they talk about how they're so proud of Bernie Sanders. Here is a socialist Democrat that is out about it. Almost like it's the same as being homosexual and coming out. That's just how they refer to it. And so you think that that means these people were in hiding and they were coming out to expose themselves to a group of people that they had expected a negative retribution from. And yet they don't get it. And they're proud. They're happy that Bernie has become this ugly sweater icon. But they really shouldn't be surprised because over the last two and a half decades, if not longer, the socialist and communist and Soviet mechanisms that have been in play for decades, if not for a hundred years, have been working with what we call soft power, doing things that aren't on their face objectionable, but trying to separate what Americans think about communism and, and the propaganda that we have had, separate it from terms that they can use to infiltrate our society separately. Now, this is work that Stalin and Lenin started a hundred years ago, and they operated under this belief that there were basic truths of human life and, and truths of nature and truths of the universe and social and political and an economic reality that were discovered and proclaimed, that these different truths were beyond debate. And their approach was that teachers and scholars in universities and in all levels of academia were there to demonstrate the truths and apply them rather than to question them or to seek other explanations for them. And so this dogma that was the government and, and the socialists, the communists, the Soviets already know what's best. And your job as a teacher is to relay our findings, this great information, these great discoveries to your pupils, who, if they take it and they apply it the right way, will result in this paradise, this nirvana of workers' rights and a peaceful country, a peaceful nation. And this lesson plan grew out of a civil war that had happened in Russia. It was an, an October revolution, the socialist October revolution, where the Bolsheviks, which were the communists, overthrew the upper classes of society 
and over the course of about 10 years, completely reformed the entire country. This was a country that had gone from czars, from kings that were called czars because it was the Russian word for Caesar. And it took them into this form of government that had never been tried before, this idea that the working man, the bottom class, actually controlled everything and everyone else lived at the benefit of the bottom class, the workers. The government was there to make sure that everyone was protected, and the government knew best. Education was not an exception to this. And so when the education system came under the scrutiny of Lenin and of Stalin, they overhauled it much the same way they did with the rest of Russian society. These teachers who had been teaching prior to the revolution still had the concepts, the textbooks, the knowledge that they had grown up with, that they had used in their profession for years or decades. And they wanted to teach it to the students as society continued. And Lenin said no. Lenin believed with great conviction that if he taught the children all of the lessons of Soviet communism and socialism, that they would accept it as God's given truth. And that he could use the children to subsequently re-educate their parents. And you see this a lot in 1920s young adult fiction, uh, where the authors are talking about these pioneers, which was like a sort of a Boy Scout group, an age group that was early teens and on up, sort of junior high school, early high school group. But the pioneers would go and teach someone's father the, the wisdom of communism, the wisdom of socialism, and they expected to have pushback from the parents. And the characters would say, well, it's all right, there's so many of us, the power of the many can overcome the one. And that was what Lenin genuinely believed would be the foundation for the Soviet Union moving forward, was this education and this elimination of critical thinking in schools. He didn't want you to question why he came up with the solutions that he did. He only wanted you to accept it and then apply it. it. It's as though he believed that the entire population was a group of sheep. But he had great success with this, particularly at first, because there wasn't a body of evidence to argue against him yet. And so he starts with the elimination of critical thinking. And then he moves into a concept called collectivism. The idea of collectivism came from Jacques Rousseau's Social Contract, which was published around the time that the United States was formed back in the 1760s. And it, it generally put together that the individual finds his true being and freedom only in submission to the general will of the community. I think that's exactly what Jacques had, had originally written. But that idea that the individual is just this small cog in the greater vast machine that is the community, and the community is what gives that cog purpose. Because without the community, that cog is just a wheel on the floor. And Karl Marx would adopt it as well. He would say things and, and would describe it, uh, would describe collectivism as something in which every man could find value. He, he said, it's not men's consciousness which determines their being, but their social being that determines their consciousness. And using this sort of lofty rhetoric, what they did was break down individuality. It was 
The goal of this particular education system to eliminate the individual and to teach children and, and eventually their parents and eventually the rest of the population, but to teach them that the individual is always subordinate to the social collective. And the social collective specifically was the great communist struggle, the great socialist struggle that came to be known as the Soviet Union. Now, the problem with teaching things like this is that eventually you're going to have pushback. You can't eliminate critical thinking in human beings. It is evolutionarily one of our strongest advantages. We rethink things on a regular basis. It is part of who we are in our DNA. So in order for Stalinism and Leninism before it to perpetuate the educational lessons of collectivism, uh, subordination of individuality, the general concepts that we're talking about today, they had to either indoctrinate with such a severe and insidious approach where it was in everything. It was on your box of cereal. It was in your newspaper. It was in the radio broadcasts. Or they had to go back and reinvent portions of history retrospectively to support the conclusions that they're pushing now under the idea that is, well, if we don't have historical precedent to prove that communism and socialism is the right answer, then we need to go back and make it up. And we can either do that by calling out other forms, such as capitalism and, and democracy, but other forms of government and saying, look at how bad these governments are. Look at their failures. And this is how you can tell communism works because nothing else does. Communism is the best. And so they would use misinformation and revisionist history and the embellishment of these historical figures that really were of not much consequence, but the embellishment of these people to create heroes of the Soviet Union, of the communist struggle that predated the civil war that many of these people still remembered. This was particularly true as time passed and we got into the 1930s, where enough evidence was available at the time to be able to point to things, to say, well, the communists have been in control for 15 or 18 years and nothing has really changed for the guy on the bottom. Nothing has changed. There are the haves and the have-nots still. And so they would come up with these explanations that it was someone else's fault. They would always blame this other entity or these other beings or, or people who opposed them. There was nothing better than finding a scapegoat. And sometimes these were political enemies that were made to be scapegoats. Other times these were other communist and socialist political parties, parties that were not the communist Soviet party, but were related. And these parties would find something that they did not agree with. And then all of a sudden that party would be persona non grata. And this party that they would point to, this party is why we have not achieved the level of success that we know communism, Leninism, and Marxism have designed for us. It's someone else's fault. When World War II came around, and there was this opportunity afterwards for the Soviets to absorb the East Bloc countries, the Soviets tried again to overhaul and reform an educational institution. Now, they felt that they had been pretty successful the first go around, and in some respects, they had. They had a higher literacy rate than they had prior to the war, and they had, generally speaking, better 
education systems than what had existed in Russia during the time of the czars. But the rest of the world had evolved as well. American universities and schooling had gotten better. So had those in Great Britain and, and virtually all of the other corners of the planet, all of the other modern industrialized countries, they had all gotten to this point where their literacy was better. But the Soviets were convinced that their system was still superior, was still so much better than everyone else's. And they were going to put it into play in these different East Bloc states like Poland and, and Ukraine and Czechoslovakia and the rest. And so they went in and they started overhauling in 1946 and 1947 all of these schools' curriculum. And they brought the same type of curriculum that the Soviets had had for so long. Now, as the Soviet soldiers were moving west into Berlin, into Germany at the end of the Second World War, they were coming across places in Poland and in Germany that had all of these things that their education had told them these countries should not have. The education that they were delivered by the Soviets was that capitalism was plundering from people, that most people lived in severe poverty. They didn't own things because they couldn't. They were slaves to the system. And yet these Russian soldiers were walking through entire cities, through suburbs, through farms, where it was clear that that wasn't true. The capitalism had benefited a number of these populations that the education system in Russia had said should be completely decimated economically. And so there was a question there in the minds of those different Russians. And you hear the stories about how some of these soldiers would become obsessed with silly things and trinkets like wristwatches. And many of the photographs from Berlin as the war was coming to an end would show these soldiers with four, five, six wristwatches on each arm. Because there was so much wealth in this country, so much wealth in Poland, so much wealth that they had walked through that they were told wasn't supposed to be there, that they took it for themselves. And they said, well, this must have been stolen. It had to have been stolen because we were raised to believe that the only way these things could exist was on the backs of the laborers, that none of this, all these riches couldn't have been for the middle class, couldn't have been anything other than some level of slavery. And so the Soviets after the war know that they have a problem, but they don't do anything about it. They've eliminated critical thinking. They've eliminated dissension. And in doing so, they've allowed problems to fester within the structure that they're about to bring into East Europe. And so they attempted again to build this collectivism, to build this society that valued the whole over the individual but they struggled. And they struggled all the way up to the end of the Soviet Union. And while they still had high literacy rates and they had a certain amount of academic success, they certainly had scientific success. If you look at Sputnik and you look at the things that the Russians did with rockets and the advancement of military, and to some degree their arts and their literature, they did have some success to point to. But the problem was is that the repression that was a result of this collectivist idea was something that was not acceptable to the majority of the population in the East Bloc countries that knew this wasn't the only way of life. During this period of time, into the 1950s and particularly the 1960s and 70s, 
One of the things that the Soviets were trying to export to the rest of the world was this education, was this collectivist uh, elimination of critical thinking, revisionist history education. And it carried all the way through the end of the Soviet Union at the end of the 80s. After the Soviet Union's collapse, the Chinese pick up the mantle. Now, the Chinese don't jump into it very quickly the way that a normal, modern, civilized, industrialized country would have, because the Chinese had to play catch up. The Soviets had kept the Chinese as a junior communist party for years. And so now China was at the front of the pack. Over time, the Chinese created the Confucius Institute, which you've probably heard a lot about, particularly in the past six months. This particular institute is actually a Chinese Communist Party effort to import certain portions of education. And they started on, on United States university campuses. They started with Chinese language teachers. The Chinese government would provide support for university programs to build classrooms, to learn about Chinese culture, and to learn about the Chinese language. And this Confucius Institute obviously refers back to Confucius, the philosopher from about 500 BC. And this particular group of people would go into the universities and they would try to soften China's image. They would try to educate the population to believe that China wasn't this threat, this monumental economic or military threat to the United States and eventually to other countries as well. There's Confucius Institutes all over the world at this point. But the people that they would put in charge were oftentimes spies. They were frequently propagandists from the Communist Party, and they would be people that weren't necessarily well disclosed to the universities. On top of that, the American teachers at these universities would have to sign a contract, and the contract would bind them to consciously safeguard the Chinese national interests. That's the actual language in the contract. And it would indicate that the teachers were prohibited from participating in any illegal organizations, that they were not allowed to discuss things like Taiwan or Tiananmen Square. They had to maintain dialogue that was only positive in the classroom and outside of the classroom to the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China, and to Chinese interests. Now, the FBI and probably the CIA were aware of this. And in 2019, the United States Senate investigated uh, the Confucius Institute and found that this soft power approach to an education uh, that would be favorable to the Chinese was something that threatened American institutions. And President Trump at the time had issued some executive orders trying to curb Confucius Institute's participation. Uh, most recently, and I, I believe it was earlier today, uh, Senate passed a Confucius bill. Uh, it's, we'll see what happens with that. But the idea is, is to curb this limitation on free speech that the teachers for each of these institutions have bound themselves to in favor of the communist government. Now, the Confucius Institute isn't limited only to colleges and universities. I mean, you figure those kids are 18 to 23 or so, 
and they can think for themselves to some degree. Confucius Institute started opening a K-12 through program a number of years ago, and they started teaching in, in elementary schools. And they brought this approach that they used on the college campuses into the elementary schools in exchange for large sums of money. And so they would go to a, an underfunded school and they would say, we'll give you $100,000 to $300,000 to update your classrooms, to provide some additional tools and some assistance. They would send books for the Chinese lessons. They would send cultural information and they would send someone who would come and oversee the Confucius program at this particular elementary school. And the question I think that we all have when you look at something like this, where you have this foreign power that's in your kids' classrooms teaching them something, what is it they're actually teaching them? Well, I looked through a second grade curriculum and there was a, a little five-day lesson plan that a teacher from uh, somewhere in California will have to come back and mention her later. But she had put together this particular curriculum and it focused on character traits, the practice of values in order to achieve goodness, and some of the general concepts about where a person fits in in their society. Now, this is a, a University of Southern California, I think it was uh, UCLA, not sure about that, but it, University of Southern California. And the teacher's name was Tanish Fortson. And so she had this, this five-day program. And on day one, uh, this is a second grade lesson. On day one, they would talk about building good character. Now, good character is defined by good acts, which you know is not wrong. If you have good character, you do good things. But if the student wants to be a good person, they have to act in conformity with social and societal expectations. They have to do what the larger collective believes is good. And if they don't, even if that larger collective is wrong, the lesson plan is effectively teaching them that they're not good. They're only good when they're in compliance. And they talk, particularly in day one, about a number of proverbs. Uh, and they were proverbs Confucius allegedly had come up with. I don't know whether or not he did. But one of the proverbs was that the strength of the many can overcome the one. Now, this is the same message we saw Lenin and the Soviets giving in the mid-1920s, 100 years ago, to children who were impressionable, the 12-year-old to 16-year-old age range, the group of kids that today read things like The Hunger Games or Twilight, they were reading at the time how to overthrow your parents. But they focus on these proverbs, such as the strength of the many can overcome the one, as part of the foundation for who these children should be if they want to be good. They need the acceptance of this larger group. Well, day two starts talking about the concept of peace and order. And it leads off with this idea that the most valuable thing to Confucius, who at this point in time in the lesson program has been built up to be a mythological figure of absolute wisdom. But they say the most important factor in a society for Confucius was peace and order. And he felt that everyone had a proper role in society and that if people were willing to abide by that role as society set it out for them, peace and harmony would abound. And so again, we come back to this idea of collectivism, that 
the individual only derives their value from the group, and that in order for your life to be good, in order for you to be good, in order to have peace in your life, you have to accept the role that the larger group has assigned to you. Again, this is a communist message that's being taught to second graders inside the United States. Now, day three is a field trip. And, you know, kids love field trips, so why not? But on day three, it's a trip to the California State University to see the Confucius statue that was donated by Taiwan. One of the subtle ways in which this plays into the larger Chinese narrative is that Taiwan is referred to as Chinese now, all the way through this curriculum and in the implications that have been this Chinese culture group of teachings and Confucius and this mindset. And oh, by the way, Taiwan also recognizes Confucius because they too are Chinese. It's this subtle indoctrination that is designed to change the opinions of people so that China can later say, well, Taiwan is ours and has always been ours. I mean, let's call this what this is. That's already what China is saying, but it's trying to create a base of support through these underhanded lesson plans that they're distributing to these second graders. But in three days, we've gone all the way into indoctrination, and it's obvious on the face of this that that's exactly what the Chinese Communist Party is doing today, as you sit here today, in elementary classrooms across the United States. And it's it, the three bullet points. It, you can only be good by following societal expectations and acting correctly. Number two, you can only achieve this by accepting your role in society. And number three, only by being in confirmation with the rest of your society and accepting this role will you have peace. All of this is directly out of the Soviet playbook. It's the same themes that were taught by the Soviets in 1936 in, in a number of different areas, but there's a particular academic paper that's written in the 50s in the United States that cites this 1936 set of lessons. And the Soviet lessons were that the state has a mythological divinity. It, it's got this right to lay claim and expectation upon its subjects. It has the right to organize the thinking and conscience of their children. And that the state and, and society, this group of communists, are gifted with mass consciousness, mass will, personal responsibility for the larger group, and by extension, the rest of the world. Collectivism. And just like the Soviets, the Chinese communists have contractually adopted these Stalinist approaches, and, and frankly, because they can't do any more than contract from this distance, but they've adopted these approaches to academia itself. They're trying to ban articulate intellectual criticism and critical thinking. It was formally done in Russia. It was contractually done in the United States. And then they work separately on the suppression of dissident media coverage and opinions that, that weren't in line with what the official party line was, much the same as how they control the teachers in America by saying you're not allowed to talk about things, even publicly that would be against the Chinese national interests. Now, in Russia, they were told originally that this was a temporary arrangement, sort of to safeguard the communist revolution. But it ends up something that 
outlives most of the people who implemented it in the 1920s. On top of that, at least in Russia, there were arrests of professors and, and scientists who threatened to do damage to the national interest that the Soviets had. And you kind of get that feeling when you read through the 2019 Senate report and you look at the languages that are used, the, the terms and the phrasing that's used in these teachers' contracts, to make them feel as though they're subject to China's laws, that they're going to be in trouble, that they're going to potentially be arrested in China for breaking these different rules. From a practical standpoint, they've adopted the approach of guidance over literature and the arts, requiring eventually, uh, at least in Russia, that everything reflect socialist realism, that everything bind to this global narrative. And that's exactly what the Chinese have done by sending us these textbooks on their culture. And you see it in the subtle things just from that, the th first three days I described to you about Taiwan and the Confucius statue. Everything has to revert back to the Communist Party. Everything has to revert back to their ultimate authority. And the revision of history, again, with the different components of Chinese culture, the Confucius links with Taiwan, is something that the Soviets used regularly in order to fit the modern narrative. Now, we've seen this far more broadly than just in elementary school classrooms. We've seen this in academia, particularly in the universities, for decades. Let's revise history to fit it a little bit better. You hear it from Ocasio-Cortez when she says things like, well, all of these prior socialist governments never really had a chance because the capitalists were always out there and they were always undermining them. It's always this revision of history to provide an excuse for why their system doesn't work, or revision of history to provide an explanation for why they do something now. But you can only revise history so many times before your population starts to look at you sideways. I mean, you know, how many times are you going to tell them that the battle was won because of this guy, and then the battle was won because of that guy? You've executed both of them in the meantime. Now it's, you know, we won the battle because of this third guy over here that wasn't even there. And the Chinese government does this Today, they, they eliminate people, they disappear all the time in order to be able to control the narrative and, and to overwrite mistakes that the communists think that everyone else has made. And eventually, the Soviets moved into this era where they removed the books and the magazines that were no longer viewed as politically correct, and, and they pulled them from the libraries. Uh, this week, you think of Dr. Seuss, although, yeah, it's a private company that pulled it, but it's the same concept. And frankly, whether or not it's a big company or a big government entity, it's pretty much the same concept. It's that this collective will, this, this larger responsibility, in America, we would call it woke. This woke group of people have got this influence and we all owe this collective to not deviate from the standard storyline. Because if we deviate from the standard storyline, we're bad people. Now, speaking of the woke movement, this is something that is not happenstance over the past five, six years in our country. Uh, there are, as in all countries, problems in our societies. Racism is bad categorically. And the Soviets knew way back when, 100 years ago, that race relations were a massive problem in the United States. And they had not been addressed yet in a meaningful way. 
Jim Crow laws were in effect. Segregation was in effect. A, a series of things that an objective person could look at and say, this is, this is wrong. This is not ethical. And the Soviets used this opening to try to indoctrinate a different group of people besides your average school child. And what they wanted to do was to exploit vulnerable populations. Now, that, that means different things in different places to the Soviets. Sometimes that's the working class. Sometimes that's an ethnic minority. Sometimes that's just a group of people that feel, to some degree or another, aggrieved by the larger society. But in the United States, they wanted to push the racial rift. And, and they wanted to make a massive divide out of what was already an obvious problem. And they wanted this rift between African Americans and the whites, as they would label them later, but the whites. They wanted to take this division, turn it into this chasm, and eventually spark a revolution that was fought by the American workers and the ethnic minorities, specifically the African Americans. And there were very public, very specific efforts over the span of the 1920s and the 1930s to try to recruit as many African Americans as they could to the communist cause. They attempted to make a movie. They would stage protests. They would take news about obvious things that were a problem in the American South and blow it up to gigantic proportions in such a way that it would cause international outrage. Everybody could look at America and see that this racial problem was all-consuming. Ultimately, though, it ended up being exposed in the mid to late 1930s because the communists, the, the Soviets, didn't actually care about race relations in the United States. And you didn't need to look any further than the non-aggression pact that they signed with Nazi Germany. And the African Americans who had been recruited and who had published you know, different articles and different publications talking about how great communism was and talking about how there was no difference between the races and the Soviet Union. And the minute that the Soviets sign with the Nazis, the blacks realized that they had been used. And nobody who actually respects race relations is going to ally themselves with the Nazis because the Nazis are building the master race and they're not hiding it. It's not a hidden concept that this is what they're doing behind closed doors. They're advertising it by the time you get to 1939. And they're trying to recruit people to it. And so if you're African-American and you see this, you think, well, how genuine could these guys have been if they're now allied with Adolf Hitler? But rather than disavowing communism and the Soviets altogether, a lot of the African-Americans and, and the african community, because it was much larger than just Africans located in the United States. It was also in the continent as well. The different countries and the different political groups that existed in Africa were recruited to some degree or another by the, the communists. But communism was billed to these people as the solution to all of their racial, their tribal, their socioeconomic problems facing the entire group of people regardless of where they were in the world, that this communist solution was going to fix it for everybody that looked like them, guaranteed. And so even though the Soviets had signed off with 
the worst and frankly most discriminatory group in the history of the world that's meaningfully recorded despite that. Many of these leaders still thought that communism was the right answer, that this particular approach to government and to the economy and to how relations went uh, amongst their people and the rest of the world were going to pull a lot of these poverty-stricken countries out of the gutter, that were going to pull a lot of discriminated against peoples out of subjugation. Now, this was not lost on the modern Chinese. This same approach isn't something that has just disappeared from the lexicon and the playbook of communists and socialists. It was converted, though, into a more covert style approach, particularly after the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, where there was so much attention to anti-communist messages. Well, as we've seen over the last four or five years, there's been this rise in Black Lives Matter. Now, this is a fairly nebulous group because you've got a lot of different organizations that claim to be Black Lives Matter. And there is at least one large group. I think they raised $90 million last year. So there's one large group out there that appears to be a league or two ahead of everybody else, but it's not clear exactly who any of these people really are. If you will recall at the beginning of February 2021, they had a week in Washington, D.C., in the American capital, where Black Lives Matter got to dictate the curriculum. And I went online, much like I did to see what the Confucius Institute was doing, and I pulled down a theme for Black Lives Matter Week of Action in Schools. This was apparently utilized in D.C. It was on the Black Lives Matter website. Um, and it was written by a woman by the name of Fayette or Fayette Cologne. And it's, it's set up much the same way as the Confucius lesson plan, which, you know, arguably the way all lesson plans are set up. This is what you do Monday. This is what you do Tuesday and so on until you get to Friday. But this particular set of lessons echoes a lot of what we saw with the Confucius Institute, which is clearly communist, a lot of what we saw with the Soviets, which you know invented communist, and now we see that it's here in a lot of the language that's utilized for the Black Lives Matter Week of Action. Now, this lesson plan is meant for middle schoolers. It's not quite as detailed necessarily as the Confucius Institute's approach, but it's not that far off. So Monday's the first day of the lesson plan, and it's about what you'd expect talks about restorative justice, uh, a term that's fairly vaguely described as bonding effort to seek freedom and justice for blacks, talks about empathy and loving engagement. And all of these concepts, much like the Confucius first day, are well accepted. This is a sort of a soft power approach. Nobody is going to look at any one of those three points and have a major issue with them. But you continue into Tuesday and things start to get weird. It goes from these these justice, empathy, loving engagement approaches to globalism. I mean, globalism is the second point on Tuesday. The first point is diversity, which is logical. That's, That's exactly what Black Lives Matter is about. But the second part of globalism seems to have nothing to do with the struggle inside of the United States that Black Lives Matter is seeking to address in this particular week of action. 
And it, it talks about how blacks should see themselves across the world. And here's, here's literally what it says. We see ourselves as a part of the global black family, and we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as black folk who exist in different parts of the world. Well, this is collectivism. I mean, just obviously on the face of it, it's collectivism. It's not an emphasis on the individual. It's an emphasis on the larger community as a whole. Now, this particular document continues, says, the goals for this in relation to these themes include highlighting black immigrants, and then we have connection with black alliance with just immigration. Now, this is an organization, and it's got something of a misleading name. According to their website, they work with African-American and black immigrant communities to organize and advocate for racial, social, and economic justice. Now, economic justice, by the way, is not defined anywhere on their website. And given the context, you, there's a fair question as to what exact economic justice definition it is that they're using. But this group also talks about uh, initiating vibrant dialogues with African Americans and Black immigrants to discover more about race, our diverse identities, racism, migration, and globalization. Here we are again with collectivism and another organization that's pushing this groupthink mentality over individualism with a tilt towards economic justice. I mean, this is this is communism. That's the little call signs, the dog whistles, if you will, of communism. And then on the third day, this lesson plan deviates significantly from what you would expect the Black Lives Matter message to be. Wednesday is queer-affirming, trans-affirming, collective value. So queer-affirming and trans-affirming, this is not an issue that is bound by color of your skin or ethnic origination. This is something that is unique to the individual. So how is it that you put queer-affirming and trans-affirming in with collective value? Well, their phrase on collective value is, we are guided by the fact all black lives, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. Now, it's an incomplete sentence. I didn't miss something there. They didn't finish it. But aside from that, you get the idea that is, we're going to take these two groups that are very individualistic, people who think a lot about how they fit in individually with the rest of society, and more specifically, how their individuality can be expressed or how their individuality sets them apart from the collective. And yet we still have this final line item here that says collective value in this effort to indoctrinate this group of people into the collective. The Thursday lesson gets a little odd as well. I mean, we've, we've started with some clear Black Lives Matter messaging from restorative justice and diversity. And now on the Thursday lesson, we're talking about intergenerational families and Black families, specifically about Black families. It says, we are committed to making our spaces family friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. I'm not sure what that means. 
We are committed to dismantling the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts that require them to mother in private even as they participate in justice work. Well, it seems a little odd to me that you're going to alienate roughly 50% of your population by only talking about mothers. I don't know where dads are in this. I know dads are important components to families. I don't know why Black Lives Matter doesn't think that. But this breakdown of the patriarchal practice is a clear attack on Western civilization. Now, Western civilization for most communists is synonymous with democratic capitalist societies. So think United States, think uh, Great Britain, think Canada, and, and a series of other economic powers that are all the result of Western civilization. The last bullet point here is black villages. And it reads, we are committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and quote-unquote villages that collectively care for one another and especially our children to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. I can't imagine how anybody can make a straight face argument about how this group is not communist. Here we are with the, the dog whistle words of collectivization, right? Collectively care for one another. The dog whistle Western prescribed nuclear family structure. And you see a, another instance of the alienation of men in this particular entry. And you have to wonder what it is they're after. But the conversation about what Black Lives is actually interested in is far bigger than what our subject is here today. This lesson that I've just read to you is being read to 6th, 7th, and 8th graders in our nation's capital a month ago. They're being told that there is something wrong with Western prescribed nuclear family structure, which by the way, lots of places in the East have as well. I'm pretty sure China has a mother and a father and a child, at least one, uh, although that's another subject too. But this attack and this preference for collectivity, and frankly, throughout the whole four days worth of lessons I've read to you, they're going after the groups that are disenfranchised from American society, or at least feel like they're disenfranchised from American society. This is, again, straight out of the communist playbook. And this is 100% the same types of rhetoric that you would see coming out of the African-American communist communities in the 1920s and early 1930s. Now, ultimately, history bore out that the Soviets didn't care about other races. They were not concerned about anything other than power and control. The Soviets taught that we were all part of a collective and that we should look outside our national borders because everyone else in the world is part of our collective. They just don't know it yet. They just need a little bit of help to spur their own revolutions. This education approach, this soft power, 
that the communists are using, that the socialists are using here in, in our country, in large American cities like New York, places where you would probably expect it like California, but in our nation's capital too. When we look at things like the 1619 Project that the New York Times has pushed, you can't look at it as a genuine approach to a different historical interpretation. It is a different approach that comes out of all these different movements with the idea that if they produce enough subtly revisionist history, and you know, slavery was there, slavery was bad. Nobody's arguing slavery didn't exist. It was taught to me in elementary school and middle school, high school and college. But the subtle revisionist history to create heroes where heroes did not exist, that Soviet mentality that is, we're going to use history to justify what we're about to do. We're going to create this larger-than-life Karl Marx. He knew better. He knew better than all of us, and he knew better long before we could get there. These ideas are so old at this point, they're beyond dispute. It's the elimination of critical thinking. The 1619 Project, the Black Lives Matter uh, Week of Action, the Confucius Institute, all of these are designed to stop our children, to stop us as a society from questioning the conclusions of the collective. And you see the collective around you every day. I hadn't planned on talking about Dr. Seuss over the last week that I've been putting this show together, but it, it got shoved into the middle of everything. But Dr. Seuss and, and six, frankly, probably bottom tier Dr. Seuss books, I'd never even heard of them before they were banned. This is the collective working to eliminate the books that don't fit the narrative, even though how they don't fit the narrative is ambiguous. We are in the middle of a concerted socialist, communist, Soviet effort to change our society radically, and they're not even hiding it anymore. This program is aimed at moderates because moderates are where things get done. Moderates are where you fix problems. You come together, you come up with a solution that actually makes sense. Not something that the neo-Nazis think is a good idea, not something that the radical socialists and the communists think is a good idea, but something that's actually going to work. Democracy. Democracy is a moderate form of government. Capitalism, in appropriate circumstances, is a moderate form of economic government. When we start giving ground to places like Confucius Institute, um, Black Lives Matter, when they're going well out of their way to not even talk about race relations, when they're just sitting here talking about globalism, when we give enough room for these things to breathe and then to poison the well of education with our children, we have done ourselves and our country a massive disservice. There have been generations of, frankly, men, women, and children who have fought wars to be able to keep the freedoms that a socialist communist government will take away from you. And if you need evidence of that, all you have to do is look at the past year. I personally believe that the United States is a moderate country, that we're somewhat progressive 
on social issues, usually. We're somewhat conservative on fiscal issues, usually. And we rotate back and forth on, on a variety of other issues. But what we're looking at is the worst nightmare that Washington could have had, that Lincoln could have had, certainly that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, would have had. Something that Kennedy and Reagan gave their lives, well, you know, Reagan lost his mind in the middle, but the end of his life, gave their time, their effort, their lives to be able to protect. And the people in our own government are the ones who are undermining it. Important take home, read what your kids are learning at school. Because what they're learning at school, if you've got the 1619 Project, if you've got Black Lives Matter in there, if you've got Confucius Institute, and, and frankly, probably a bunch of less organized groups as well. But if this is what your kids are being taught, they're being led into this false belief that any of this is going to end somewhere other than a totalitarian dictatorship. There isn't a socialist country, the Soviet communist style socialist country on the planet where this has worked out well. This has never worked. It will never work. It is a tool that's being utilized to subject children and later the rest of society to the will of a small group of people that like to refer to themselves as the collective. Next week, we're going to talk about mass media and the communist and, and Soviet approaches to co-opting mass media. I think that this is a subject that most of you are probably already aware of. Um, you know, I, just look at Twitter and Facebook. Uh, but this is something we're going to talk about a little bit outside the mainstream because Twitter and Facebook are pretty obvious. But there's some other areas where the communists and the, the Soviet approach has taken hold in our country in a meaningful way. So if you like the podcast, please subscribe to it. If you hated the podcast, subscribe to it. If you absolutely hated it and you think I'm an idiot, I would love to get some emails from you because I, I love those debates. And speaking of mass media, follow us on Twitter at fed underscore outpost. I hope you guys have a good week and we'll talk to you next week.